Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a chat. Me too. And the reason why I wanted to have a chat with you, Jackie, is because, as you know, some time ago, I interviewed a, a friend in common, Andy Lopata. And I, I asked him a question because I had attended one of his presentations. I think it was last year or something. And one thing I liked about that particular presentation was that he started by, instead of asking the usual just a few questions, hands up if you know this or if you know that. He gave us, I was part of the audience, and he gave us to each member of the audience two cards, one green and one red. And then he asked us a series of questions. And every time we had to bring the, the card up, either the red one or the green one, and it was very nice. Sometimes it was like both hands with both cards up, the entire audience, it created a lot of buzz and interaction and engagement. And I said, I said to him, I liked that, I still remember that particular part of your presentation. And he said, well, if, if you did, then you need to speak to Jackie because she's the expert when it comes to audience engagement and this kind of thing. It actually told me that you gave, me, you gave him that idea for that particular presentation. So that's why we are here today. Uh, yes, well, thank you. Andy's been a great support of mine over many years. And it is true that he will often come to me when he wants an idea for a, something interactive to support a breakout session, as do um, some other speakers. Uh, but I got the idea from someone else as well. I got the idea from an American speaker who, to my shame, I can't remember his name, but he had four coloured flags. Mm. And he used to go to events and he'd have a thousand sets of these flags wrapped in elastic bands and they'd be hiding under the table or under the chair and at a certain point he'd get audience members to wave the coloured flag in answer to whatever question he just posed and of course this puts pressure on people because they look around the room to see oh what colours everybody else waving it makes a great photo opportunity and then his amazing top tip was and at the end of the session then you ask people to pack their flags up again because otherwise he'd be sitting in his hotel room sorting out all these different flags into a thousand different sets of colours uh, so yeah red and green voting um, it's also used on TV shows over here. There used to be um, a cookery show where the audience would vote by holding up a green pepper or a red tomato. Uh, and in the Apprentice TV show, the follow-on programme, the comedy version, where they do the interviews with the participants, they hold up hired or fired. And so I think anything you can get your audience to do rather than just sit passively and listen to you is a great way of um, engaging them. But more importantly, when it's done to help embed your message, I'm not saying you do any of these things just for fun, although they can be fun. Uh, there really always has to be a point. And often with those red green voting cards, because some people are colorblind, um, sometimes you can print on colored card, yes or no. So it's not just holding up a colour, it's also holding up a word or a tick or a cross um, or even traffic light colours, red, amber, green, and then you can get a subtlety about the way the audience votes. And online you can do exactly the same thing because 
now that we're having to present in the virtual world and our audience might be in one room where the speaker is beamed in and on a big screen or the audience might be around the world all in their own sitting room or in their home office uh, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead to something I was saving till later maybe but one of the things I've done is prepare an A4 sheet of lots of little signs that I send as a PDF to my workshop attendees in advance for them to print and cut out. So they have at their desk little things they can hold up like ah. this. So rather than click a button, they in mix the physical world and the virtual world by having their own little signs to hold. And this one is my favorite. I'm mute. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one, I think I read a meme or something on LinkedIn the other day, and it was something related to you are a mute, which seems to be the, the most spoken sentence in the last six months or something everywhere. And, and I, was, I was super curious because you, you, you have these, you special, among other things, I know you are also a copywriter, but you wrote this excellent book which i recommend to everybody experiential speaking so there it is perfect experiential speaking highly recommended and it's all about creating those moments of interaction and engagement with the audience just out of curiosity where does that interest come for you from you because you you are as i said you're also a copywriter but then you are also very you've got a very specific niche which i love which is audience interaction and engagement where does that come from you where does the interest come from you well for me it all comes from being a writer it all comes from knowing what your message is and knowing what's in the brain of your audience and then working out the best way to get your message into their brain. Because mm. sometimes it's the written word on paper or on screen. Sometimes it's the spoken word in a presentation. And sometimes it's through an activity that the audience undertakes. And so for me, it's all connected because it's all just ways of communicating and it all comes from being a copywriter. But what I've realized is uh, unusual is that I have throughout my life had a tendency to gamify everything and it almost doesn't matter what it is I will turn it into a game and for example if it's present giving for a teenager and all they want from their fun auntie is some money I don't just give them money I make them earn it through playing a game and often these games are inspired by TV shows or by children's board games or by uh, well just invented inventions out of my own brain because that's the way it works and so they have to do forfeits or they have to do a quiz or there's various different things I, I make them do before they win their money and so a lot of the activities I do as part of a talk or a training session are a way of gamifying the content to make it all about what the audience does and then what the audience learns and remembers more than about anything that I might say. Mm. And these days, training on Zoom, I train, for example, recruiters how to write better job ads. I train journalists how to add copywriting as a skill set. I train business owners how to get their message across clearly. And uh, if I'm doing a whole day of training on Zoom, or even half a day, 
the last thing I would do to anyone <laughs> is force them to sit still at a screen while I just talk and share my screen. So I use all the tools that Zoom offers and turn them into games so that at least once every 15 minutes they have to do something. And that means that it keeps their attention the whole time. Uh, but really critically, just as with an in-the-room activity, it has to be relevant and there has to be a point and there has to be seen to be clear for the participants so that they bother to engage. And it also has to be presented that way to them before they sign up so that they know they're going mm. into a session where they're going to be involved in some fun activities and, uh, and stuff like that. Highly interactive, yeah. And because you mentioned that, of course, we're not talking about activities for the audience for just for activity's sake, but it has to, it has to be relevant to the point you want to get across, to the message you want to communicate. So how do you, how, and by, by the way, Jackie, if, if any question I ask, if it doesn't lead anywhere, or if the question is not clear, just let me know, we can, this is a very informal chat, but how do you go about making sure that whatever activity you propose to the to the audience then is related is connected to the message you want to get across because in your book for example you talk about energizers you mentioned now it's about gamifying things so you talk about games energizers icebreakers how do you go about making sure that these activities are always connected to the message you want to communicate I start from the other end. I start with the message and then work out an activity rather than the mm. other way around. And possibly it comes from connected with copywriting. My degree is psychology. And more recently I've done a neuroscience course to refresh my skills in that area. So it also comes from an understanding of what, um, when I'm in, in my copywriting role, uh, what words and symbols communicate best, how the brain interprets these, and then what will trigger them to take action. So all my ideas come from this kind of uh, knowledge, or suppose study over years about what makes people tick. Mm. And so it's actually operating on them in more than one level. It's not just simply an activity. It is all about keeping their attention especially in front of a Zoom screen, it is about keeping their energy levels up, which is what an energizer is supposed to do. And for me, that often means making them do something physical or making mm. them do something. And um, yeah. making it all not so much about the speaker. I've never been one who wanted to be in the spotlight. I, I call myself a trainer more than a speaker, even though I have been on big stages and in the spotlight. That's not why I do it. It's always about, I happen to know something that they need to know and what is the best way for me to deliver that message to them. Yeah, that's great. When we work with our clients, I'm a presentation coach, a public speaking coach. We always tell them, look, when you give a presentation, it's their presentation, not yours. It's always the audience's presentation. So this is the, the idea of making anything you do relevant to the message you want to communicate, but to the audience themselves is super important. And Jackie, let's talk about neuroscience because you said that you, you've done a course and you are interested in this area. And also I'm fascinated by 
how our brain works, learning about how our brain works and what that means when it comes to communication, effective communication. And online, I found a very interesting article on your blog. And the I have it here. The title is, What's Neuroscience Got to Do With It? So could you please tell us what, what's neuroscience got to do with your area of it? Or what's neuroscience got to do with experiential speaking? Well, one of the things is connected to what I was suggesting earlier. If, if a human being has fun and laughter, mm. or they anticipate fun and laughter, it releases happiness chemicals and makes you feel good. So as presenters, if you are able to market your event in such a way that people think it's going to be fun, they already feel good about attending before they get there. And if you give them some kind of surprise at the beginning that they're not expecting, that grabs their attention, they are more likely to listen to you because their mind shifts from a place of, oh no, I've got to sit in front of Zoom for an hour and uh, listen to some boring presentation. It shifts into a different space where they are more anticipating getting involved, having a laugh, enjoying themselves. And then they're, I think, on all the evidence seems to show they're more open to learn. And why wouldn't you give your audience a happy experience? And why wouldn't you let them take part in, as you say, building their own presentation so they get the most out of it? The other key point is they will remember more what they do than anything they heard or anything they saw, which you've illustrated with your story about Andy's talk and the red and green cards. Because years later, you'll remember being asked to weigh red and green cards and you may not remember it was first Andy that you saw do it because lots of people do it or do similar things. Um, so you might remember that and the message you got from it more than any single words you heard or any single slides you saw or any single videos you watched, you're going to remember, oh, I waved red and green cards and I saw everybody else waving red and green cards. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about before. It, it's not about creating those moments just, just because it's nice or, or because it's cool. Of course, it's fun and it's cool, but the main point is that it helps the audience better understand and remember and learn what, what you are communicating. So that, that's why I think this is so important. And also, Jackie, you know, I wanted to ask you, again, in your book, Experiential Speaking, you talk about different types of moments of interaction. You talk about icebreakers and, and games and energizers. Could, you, you already did that, but could you give us some other examples? Maybe feel free to maybe just one example per category, whatever comes to your mind. Okay, well, for me, an icebreaker is more of a getting to know you exercise. Mm. And it probably comes from being from a training background rather than a speaking background, because you tend to have smaller groups of people for longer periods of time where when you're in a breakout session or if you're doing a training course than you do if you're a main stage keynoter. Because some of those people that are booked for a 45 minute session at a big conference, for example, how they engage the audience is through amazing storytelling skills or um, through the ability to uh, do drumming or to, they, so they have a skill that the audience will be compelled to watch. 
And not all of us have that. Not all of us have stories about climbing mountains or uh, whatever it may be that some of those really big motivational or, or talented content speakers have. So for those of us that are working with a smaller group for a longer time, that group might not know each other. And so the icebreaker exercise generally is just an introduction to who's who in the room because then you know who you're working with through the day. And you know in a training context that used to be called creeping death <laughs> when it goes around the table and one by one people have to say who they are and what they do and no one listens to anyone else when that happens because they're, they're so thinking busy. about ourselves they're, they're so busy worrying about what they're going to say uh, and it doesn't really work so in the train in the physical uh, this is still the physical world we've just got a screen between us but you know the language hasn't evolved yet to make the distinction but in the actual training room one of the things that i do is what i call snowball fight which is one of the most popular uh, and i think the first activity in the book lots of people have told me how they've adapted this and use it, used it and uh, that's another point actually the ideas in the book are really there for anybody to tailor to their own brand their own content, their own style. I'm not saying copy what I do because then all that becomes a boring cliche that every participant has experienced and it stops being original and, and inventive. So the snowball fight, how I do it is I print out a slip of paper with 140 boxes on it. And that's the number of characters there used to be in a tweet before exactly. Twitter doubled it. And so each person arrives to find this little slip of paper on their place. And they instantly are thinking, well, what's that all about? And they generally sort of push it to the side and get on with things. Oh, the advanced version of that actually is to give them all these little props and things you're going to do them inside an envelope. And the envelope says, do not open until advised. And even if they do open it, they won't find anything in it that means anything because it's all a bit um, cryptic until the instructions are given but I love giving them this envelope. And even in a big room, you can put an envelope on every chair and they, they get it. And most people are obedient. They won't open it till they're told. And they're instantly curious, what's in the envelope? And they can't wait for the speaker to come on and tell them, can I open my envelope now? So that's the mindset you want. It's so exciting to watch their faces, I love it. Anyway, so they get their slip of paper and you ask them to write a tweet. Of course, it's not a real tweet, it's just paper and pen. And you choose what you give them as a task to write about. So if I'm training recruiters, I'll ask them to write an advert for their own job. If I'm training um, in-house marketing teams, I might ask them to complete the sentence copywriting is. And they have to write one character, a letter or a punctuation mark or a space, per box and they don't have to fill the whole 140 but they can't go over then what they do is they screw it up and they're really not expecting this so they they take two or three minutes to think and and the funniest one is the journalists because they always write a rough draft before they fill in the slip of paper they're the only group that does that but anyway so they've all written it you can see around the table when they've done it and then you ask them to screw it up and you see their brains go, oh, I've just worked really hard and screwing up means it's rubbish. So they have this moment of confusion, which means you have to move on very quickly to the next bit, which really takes them by surprise because you then say, now throw it around the room and you demonstrate the same thing. So you're giving them permission to do it. 
And at this point, they're very bewildered. So they have this little snowball fight, throwing the pieces of paper. Mm. And very quickly, you then stop that and then gather the pieces of paper and deal them out so everyone gets one back. Then it starts making sense for them at this point, because then you open them out one by one, because they're all curious to see, oh, what have I got? What message have I got? And normally, I will then start, read it out. That person then identifies themselves. Mm. Then you can ask them a little bit more about who they are and what they do. And you're, you're informed by what they've written. For example, going back to recruiters, if they've written their own job ad, it gives you an instant clue about how good or bad their job ad copywriting is before the start of the day. Mm. If you're doing marketing teams and asking them to define copywriting at the beginning, you can then anonymously work out what is their level of understanding now with that simple game and then instantly guide your introduction according to the definitions people have given. Or you can just pick them out one at a time through the day and say, oh, here's another definition. What do we think of that one? And have a, use it to lead a discussion. You can use the snowball fight for a Q&A session because people can write questions on bits of paper and throw them to you at the front of the room and then you've got a load of anonymous questions to answer with no embarrassment about people putting their hand up. You can then um, make sure you don't get taken down a tangent by someone who's asked an irrelevant question in the real world because you only read out the questions that you, you know are on topic. Um, and you can use it as a revision exercise right at the end of the day to say, okay, write your best tip of the day, screw it up, throw it around the room, and then everyone gets a snowball to take away with a piece of advice. The one that wrote it will remember that tip because they've gone through the action of writing it, mm. and the one that gathers the tip has got a, a gift from someone else in the room as another reminder of the key per learning point. So it's just so adaptable, I love it. No, that's great, me too. And I'm finding it difficult, Jackie, now, because on the one hand, I need to stay focused on this conversation. On the other hand, I'm still, I'm already thinking about how I can apply your tips to my own scenario. So I need, I need to stay focused now and, and then think about it later. And could you give us instead an example of an energizer? So first of all, what are we talking about? And, and an example, and when is it best to use it? Okay, with a Zoom energizer, because one of the things, as I said earlier, is trying to get people away from their screen mm. um, or to do something physical so they're not just passively sitting and looking at a screen. One of the things you can do as a getting to know you exercise is um, a kind of treasure hunt in your house. So uh, it depends how serious you want this to be. If you want to do it as a more uh, sort of formal introduction session, you can say to everybody, reach for something on your desk mm. um, that tells us something about you. So people don't leave their chair, but they pick up something. I've picked up a blue pen, show it to the camera. And then in turn, it will be, well, tell us the story of the item you've picked up. Well, for me, I can tell you a story about the blue pen, which is that when I worked in corporate life and I was a copywriter, they used to print the text in a galley form on a, on a long piece of A4 paper and the copywriters always used to mark their edits in blue and the graphic designers used green and the buyers used red. So you always knew who'd written it. So for me as a copywriter, if I'm mm -hmm. writing any colour other than blue, it feels very unnatural to me 
because I spent years of being identified by the colour blue ink. So there's a little story that's told you something else about me and my background and everyone will have within reach something that tells you something about them. So that's one example and why it brings energy is because it's not just looking at a person in this little square box, it's hmm. making them move a bit. The other one that's more of a game and perhaps depending how you do it will be less obvious how you draw out a learning point is a whole treasure hunt around the house. So you say to them, okay, you're going to find three things, um, a round thing, uh, a green thing and a, uh, a fluffy thing. And then you give the health and safety warning. So you say, this is not a race because you really don't want people to run around the house and fall over and hurt themselves. And really nobody wants to go to A&E at any time, but you especially don't want to go there now. So you say to them, and maybe you play some copyright free music in the background while they do it, or you, you have some visual um, slide share going on while they do it. So you give them two or three minutes and, or, or five minutes, how long you think it's going to take. Normally people do treat it as a race and they run anyway, but if you've given the health and safety warning, <laughs> um, you can't stop them. So they go around the house and they find these three things and then in, they bring them back to their camera. And what you've done is literally given them an energy boost mm. because they've stood up off their chair their creative mind is thinking, oh, what have I got that's green? What have I got that's, that's furry uh, or fluffy or whatever it was that you've, you've briefed them? And they've come back and they've piled it on their lap and then they're waiting to see what's everybody else got. So they're full of excitement again. And then in turn, you get them to share these objects in front of their camera and talk about them. And then you can draw out whatever messages about creativity or, or whatever is the point of your talk. Now, physiologically, because you asked about neuroscience, what's happening is by moving, the blood is, your heart is pumping more, your blood is moving more around your body, and your blood is bringing more oxygen to your brain. So therefore, it's an energizer because your brain, if you've been sat still for too long, you, it starts getting a little bit stale, and, and any kind of movement is going to refresh that and give you a sort of ability to think more clearly. Yeah, I, I love that, Jackie. And it's, it's very, very much connected to, for example, one of the things we, we say to our clients is that in any presentation, say that we need to, I need to prepare a presentation together with a client, important presentation. We always work together to find what we call a magic moment in that presentation. But we like to call it magic with a cue at the end, not with a C, magic with a Q. And magic stands for makes a great impression quickly. And so the idea is we always ask our, our clients, our speakers, okay, what can you say? What can you show? But especially what can you do that makes your message unforgettable? And I like this conversation very much because it's, it's all about doing. And, and doing, doing things and, and inviting the audience to not just think about something, but also do something is super powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also, Jackie, another question I wanted to ask you is, now, we are also talking here sometimes about, let's say, playful activities. In your experience, have you ever faced resistance? And, and if so, maybe from some members of the audience, and if so, 
how do you go about overcoming the resistance? Do you have any tips, any ways of bringing everyone on board? Especially, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, I can assume that especially if we're talking about maybe a formal, more like serious presentation with senior members, it could be a board of director, uh, yeah, a board, board of directors. How, how, how do you make the connection between these more playful activities and, and those like, more serious presentations? That's a great question. I get asked it a lot. And it's, it's really interesting to me because I find the people that come on my courses, they're already primed to know what to expect. Mm. And so they're up for it. But I was invited as a guest speaker to a very senior group of business leaders. And the organiser who first booked me, when I talked around which activities I thought would work for them, um, he was totally up for it. He said, they've got a great sense of humor and you know, it's, they'll be fine. And it was very interesting because this was originally going to be in a, a very posh hotel and with a three course lunch and there would have been wine flowing. And so these particular games we'd planned would have fitted perfectly in that atmosphere, that ambiance. And then it switched to Zoom and they were all very inexperienced online. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't very tech savvy and they would have been very nervous about some of the things. I, I couldn't translate what I'd originally planned for a Zoom meeting. And so during this period of time also, the organizer had changed to somebody else who got very nervous about me doing something interactive with this group. And so we came up with two ideas. And the first idea was the one I thought would go better. And the first idea was much more serious and with a much more direct learning point. And it was followed by a plenary session where they all discussed what they got out of it and how they might use it and so on. And it worked, they went along with it, but it fell a little bit flat. And the second activity, um, I, was the one I thought was, I was more nervous about. And it went brilliantly because two things had happened. One was the first activity had set them up to start getting involved. Also, one of my key points is always, I will be a bigger fool than anybody else in the room. I will never let anybody embarrass themselves. I don't make them do role plays. I don't, mm. uh, it's always a group activity. Um, it, it, I would, none of my, my games or, or sessions bear any risk for the people who are involved. Now I'll tell you the second activity that worked so well. And it's, it's so simple. I sent them into breakout rooms uh, with groups of uh, four and they were tasked with thinking of uh, a fascinating fact about themselves. And all of them had to think of something true, except for one person in the room had to think of a lie. Mm. And then I gave them five minutes to do that and to have a bit of a chat because I knew they wanted to do some networking too. So maybe I gave them 10 minutes, I can't remember. Then when they came back in the main room, I would unmute them room by room and the rest of us had to guess which, was, which one was lying. Well, this was a, a getting to know you networking activity. 
they had never done anything like it before. They were laughing their heads off. I couldn't believe some of the facts they had come up with about themselves and the things they were revealing as true. Um, or how creative and imaginative some of their lies were and how brilliant they were at fooling their colleagues or not. Uh, and it was hilarious and it could have gone on for hours. And that was the one I thought was risky. So because a lot of these things are based on games and deep psychology would say, yes, we've all had an inner child or, well, we've all been a child. We all do know what it is to play. And a lot of us, it doesn't matter if you're a senior leader, will probably play at home with the family or play games at Christmas or, and not everybody's into board games, I know, but I just have a be fundamental belief that I can't think of any human that doesn't actually like laughing. Mm. And that comes from being lighthearted, letting go of that serious front a little bit and having permission to do that, which is what you, the facilitator of these sessions, needs to set up. Yeah, I, I love that. And also, Jackie, because you've just mentioned when you gave the example, I gave them 10 minutes or something. So it's not a question that I was thinking about asking you, but now I do. Now, when you, again, based on your experience, when you run a a training session, a workshop, especially if we're talking about sessions which go longer than, definitely longer than an hour. It could be like a morning or a full day workshop. And if you want to make it practical, because I also do this, and so I just want to learn from you. If you want to make it practical and if you want to give the participants the opportunity to practice the skills that they've just learned normally when you create those maybe breakout rooms how what, what what do you recommend how much time is it especially in an online workshop how much time should you give them to work on an activities because what i find is that pre-covid then it was even for me as a sometimes as a trainer it was easier to maybe give an exercise and you could even give them half an hour and you were there in the room and you could walk around. So it was much easier. Now I think about the fact that if you give them a half an hour, then you really need to plan it well. Um, what, because you don't want to let leave them alone for half an hour unless you've planned everything carefully. So what's your experience with that? Uh, breakout rooms and managing them varies depending on the numbers and the tasks that you've given them. So some of the ways I manage that is I would never send them off for half an hour um, mm. for the particular work that I do. It's a much quicker pace always. Um, but I can imagine a, a time when that might be necessary where you've got a subgroup working on a particular project in a breakout. Um, what I do is on Zoom, and I know there are other platforms available, on Zoom you can send broadcasts into breakout rooms. Yeah. Now, the broadcasts appear in a tiny little green bar at the top of the screen, so you have to tell people to watch out for them because they're not very obvious. Mm -hmm. But I have pre-typed all my messages so that I can just copy-paste them during the meeting and not sit there accidentally making typos or forgetting to do something. So the first message will be a, a welcome to the room and a reminder about what they've got to do and how long they have, because often people forget. Then there'll be timer reminders as a countdown. 
you know, five minutes left or two minutes left. Zoom's default is to give them a one minute yep. countdown to leave the room. I think that's too long. And mm. it's awkward because when you're in a room and that countdown's going, then that people can't speak anymore. They're just watching it and going, oh, this is, we've only got, oh, look, it's counting. Oh, should I quit, leave now? Oh, so it just kills the chat. So you can, in Zoom, override that and leave it, change it to 30 seconds, which is much easier because that's just enough people. If you've given the other time warnings, 30 seconds is enough for them to say, ah, okay, time's up, see you back in the main room, bye then, and uh, it, it works better. So if there is a longer time as a host or a co-host, you can visit each meeting room. Yeah. So you can pop in and see how they're doing. You can, with a very big meeting, set a co-host as a facilitator in each room. So depending how many attendees you've got, you might um, find it difficult to move people around because if you have set it to choose who goes in which room, uh, that can be quite a lot of work and yeah. quite hard to manage if you've got hundreds of people. So, but you can, here's one thing I did when I was co-host a, meet, a meeting with 711 participants and we have breakout rooms. First, we found that although, although Zoom says you can have 50 breakouts, it wouldn't let you, it only let you have 25. So uh, that's hard to test before <laughs> the event, but that's what we found. So the groups were twice the size we thought they were going to be. And then the co-hosts, we'd all renamed ourselves in the participant panel to have five stars before our name and five stars after. Because in that alphabetical list, as a co-host, you'll appear at the top and everyone else will be alphabetical. But by, when you put into breakouts and you ask Zoom to sort people randomly, it's no longer alphabetical. Mm. So you can't find everybody. But if the co-hosts have all got their names starred, it's easy to find them in the list and then assign a co-host to each room as a facilitator. Uh, so there's a little kind of process tip to manage that. And if there's a facilitator in each breakout room for a period of time, then that person is the one who can deal with any questions and keep yeah. people on track and judge, oh yes, they've had enough time now. And the other thing to remind everybody when you're briefing them before a breakout is they can always click leave room. Now in Zoom's design, leave room is very close to the leave meeting button. <laughs> there's always a risk that some people will click the wrong one. So you can warn them about that. And you can say to them, there's an ask for help button. So if anyone's stuck in a room and they don't know what they're meant to be doing, they can click ask for help. And then you as the host will get a message to go That's there. Fine. The other tip is of course, like new technology, it can be a bit glitchy. And depending what device people are using, they don't always end up in a room. And I found with some big meetings, for no apparent reason, you get someone stuck in the main room who you cannot assign to yeah. the room they're meant to be in. So you always need to be ready for anything and make sure you might have a little mini meeting room in the main room uh, because breakouts aren't working 100% properly for no apparent reason other than just a glitch. Yeah, yeah, I had that experience as well. It was impossible for me. You need to be in that room, but it wasn't it was impossible. And, but I, I think, I don't know about your experience, Jackie, but I have to say that although this new world now has given us some, some new challenges that we didn't have before, for example, 99% of the workshops, not, not like coaching, but the workshops I, I used to give pre-COVID were face-to-face, 
now 100% are online. And there are some new challenges. Um, however, there are also some new, super exciting, if you know what to do, very exciting things that you couldn't do before that you can do now. Also in terms of creating those moments of interaction and participation with the audience. So it's, it's not all bad. No, I've been really quite enjoying exploring all the outer edges of Zoom and all the things it can do. I have gamified them in some way or another. So renaming people you can turn into a game. Uh, <laughs> chat you can make people do. Polls you can make people do things. Breakouts, screen share, whiteboard. And I have recently um, adapted one of my sessions to include uh, the Mentimeter app. There's also Poll Everywhere or Slido because they give you more graphic ways of playing uh, with the visuals. And one of the things that I have lost from my um, real world training sessions is how I used to give prizes. So mm. recruiters, to generalize, are very competitive types. And we used to set up the day to say, if you write anything cheesy during the day, you'll get cheese and we'll give them a mini baby bell. Or if they write something smart, they get Smarties, a tube of Smarties. And at the end of the day, someone would win a bottle of champagne. Uh, well, you can't do that in the virtual world. So I'm still looking for what prizes can we give? And I know you can give virtual badges. Um, I've even tried giving charity donations, and, but that just hasn't been quite as motivating and it's not as funny as cheese and chocolate, which uh, really worked. Uh, because recruiters are all over LinkedIn and they'd all be competing to win cheese and chocolate and taking photos of it. And it really worked on the a, on a social media side as well. So I'm still looking for what is the equivalent of giving out props and prizes online. And one of the things Mentimeter can do is uh, at the end of the day, the equivalent of the champagne, whoever will win the champagne. Now there's a Mentimeter slide where people vote on their phone given a special code and they vote for their winner so it's all very um, transparent and again it's a physical thing you make them do because mm. they're not just sitting in front of this screen clicking virtual icons they they're doing something else uh, and at the end to reveal the winner it the slide releases a little shower of confetti with a little and you could play a little tune to go along with it so that's the nearest i could get so I think I need I need something similar for an event I'm organising in September. What, what what's it called again? How do you spell it? That one is called Mentimeter, which is M E N T I M E T E R. Okay. Uh, there are others. Slido is S L I. Yeah, I know Slido. Yeah. Poll everywhere. So there are different tools that do similar things. Great. And and also, Jackie, another question I wanted to ask you is now let's say that you have a let's say that we are talking about a presentation. So not not a workshop, not a training session. Say that you have a 20-minute business presentation, or it could be a one hour, I guess the answer will be different. I don't know, but a business presentation for either 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. If we think about these moments of interaction that we've talked about today, how many, how many of these moments would you suggest that we include in a, in a formal business presentation, depending on how much time you have? I usually say, get the audience to do something every 15 minutes. Mm. If you want to keep their attention. 
if you're doing a 20 minute talk, you might not have interaction, uh, but I tend to have some visuals as well as my talking head if I'm doing a talk, because you know how easy it is for people to be checking their messages on the side or to um, their mind will drift away. In the same way that if you're in the actual conference room, you can't force someone to watch you on stage. If they want to look at their water bottle, if they want to look at the fire exit, that's where they're going to look. So you have to use your skills to keep their attention on, on you if you're sharing valuable information that they need to know. And so I think in 20 minutes, I will often do a shared screen. Now, you will know there are tools, including the new version of Zoom, where you can share a slide and have your talking head in the corner of the slide or make it more 50-50. So, and there are other apps that enable you to integrate your static visuals and yourself. Now, I would tend to not use those just yet as virtual backgrounds, partly because when people are watching on a phone, even if they're holding the phone sideways, the slide is very small. And if you're combining it with your head, then there's even less chance of them to see the content of the slide. And of course, the slide should be simple and it should add to the content and communicate something extra that your spoken word can't. But I also think they know at this point what I look like. They see quite enough of me talking down the camera. So I don't mind coming off screen to show them something but I will normally flag it. I will normally say, ah, I'm about to show you a diagram of such and such. And often I'll make my diagrams animated. So there might be little mini videos or um, so that's movement. It's not just, here's a drawing of a triangle and I'm gonna mm. talk you through what this triangle means. Uh, and so you can't always do that with a building slide, but you trigger it, trigger their attention by saying, oh, you need to watch this bit. So not in those words. <laughs> and that brings them back again because they're seeing something different than what they've already seen for the last 10 minutes, which is maybe me talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like these 15 minute rule. I, I don't Have you ever read Brain Rules by Dr. John Medina, Jackie Benichance? No, I don't remember that one. I think you like it because you, you, you told me that you're interested in neuroscience and, and it's not about it's not just about the connection between neuroscience and, and communication, but it's, it's very much connected. And in that book, Dr. John Medina, he's a, he's, a, he's a scientist, and he says that, not even 15, he says that every 10 minutes, we should do something. We, it's as if every 10 minutes, we need to buy the audience's attention back. Otherwise, physiologically, if you look at how our brain works, it falls down. And, so, and it could be anything. I think it calls them every 10 minutes, you need to, you need to create a, a, I don't remember how he calls them, but basically it's something, it could be as simple as asking a question or even better, the activities that you suggest, inviting them to do something so that they, you can buy the audience's attention back. But I agree with you, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 15 minutes, we have to do something to keep the attention higher. I think especially now in the online world, because it's even harder to keep the attention high online. 
Okay. And also, Jackie, I wanted to, I found something on your website in, in one of your articles, you say, and I was, I was interested in that. You said that many of the, the principles that you suggest are inspired by, by the improvisation world. And so I wanted to ask you just, first of all, just out of curiosity, have you done anything in that, in that field when it comes to improv and these kind of things? And also, you said in that article that in their world, they say that mistakes are the best bit, which, which I love as a concept. So could you please just explore a little bit? Okay, I was at a PSA London meeting, I think six or seven years ago, and John Creamer did a one-hour improv workshop. And at the beginning, at the beginning of the workshop, he said at the end, there would be a play performed by four volunteers with no script and it would be the funniest thing anyone had ever seen. And in my head, I thought in that moment, I'd never do that in a million years. And we went through his workshop and we started with some very gentle games as a group and then in pairs and then it went on and it went on. And at the end of the session, I was enjoying myself so much. Uh, I'd completely forgotten what he said at the start and he laid out four chairs and three volunteers sat on three of the chairs and one was still empty and my legs got up and walked me to sit on the fourth chair and my Wave. head my head was saying what are you doing and John remembers my face was completely white with terror and I have no idea what made me do it but sure enough we sat on the four chairs and we acted out a play with no script and it was hilarious. And I remember getting a huge laugh and, and thinking, oh, I like this. And I was totally hooked from that minute. Went and did more training with John, went and more training with other improv teachers. And in the years in between, every month I've done something, whether it's a course or go to a show or even perform in a show because last year I ended up in an improv troupe. But my whole improv learning has unleashed the playfulness that was always in me and given me permission to care less what people think of me and made me a much better speaker and trainer and presenter and human being because I'm more relaxed about things and I'm better able to deal with uh, problems. I'll give you two examples. Uh, the first one, I was asked to MC a charity dance show and I'm not really an MC. It was a favour for a friend, uh, but I knew I could do it. And it was 450 people in the audience. There was a cast of 180 and lots of them were children. And I knew anything could go wrong. And I'd be up front with a microphone in the spotlight, uh, trying to hold it all together. And I was nervous. And I'd been asked to prepare 20 introductions of 30 seconds each and be funny. That was the brief. Mm. So it wasn't an easy brief, but I'd done my prep and I'd written my introductions. And then one of my friends said to me while I was panicking in advance, why don't you treat it like an improv challenge? And suddenly all the panic fell away. And the bit of my brain that is ready for anything because I've been practicing that through improv was instead of being scared of things going wrong, I was in the front of the stage ready for anything. I was ready for the audience to give me something or something on stage to happen or the music to fail. And it didn't matter what happened. A few things happened and I was able to ad lib and I felt these waves of warmth from the audience knowing that I had it. I was so in the moment, which is another thing improv teaches you, um, that 
they were confident in me. I was confident in me because I knew it just didn't matter. Yeah, so mistakes are the that, best bit. That's one story. The mistakes are the best bit. There are lots of games in improv where you practice making mistakes and celebrating them and building on them. And I just think what a great cultural shift for a lot of organizations who are these days taught to fail faster so that they can succeed sooner and not to punish mistakes, but to reward them. Now, I mean, clearly there are mistakes that have a big implication and those ones, if they have really negative ramifications, you don't really want to make those, but it's all those cliches about mistakes are a learning opportunity and so on. There are improv games where you practice celebrating mistakes that when people do it in the improv world, it leaks back into the real world. And if you lose your fear of making mistakes, you are then braver about stretching your comfort zone. And this is so much the kind of learning that lots of people talk about in, uh, on stage. And yet when you do it through a game, whether it's online or offline, People learn the same thing, but they learn it while having belly laughs at the same time. And that seems to me a great way to learn. So powerful. Yeah, it's super powerful. And, and I think, Jackie, we can, we can end this way with improv. And I wanted to ask you one more question. Now, in addition to experiential speaking, which is a book I recommend to, to everybody, if you think about, there it is. Just show, show it, show it close to the car. Perfect. Experiential speaking. If you, if you are, if you'd like to learn more about how you can create interaction and an audience engagement, this is the book for you. I, re I highly recommend it. Now, in addition to this, Jackie, if you think about presentations in general, public speaking, do you, and it's fine if you don't have any other recommendations, but do you have any other it could be great books or resources or even people to follow that, that we should consider. I can credit the idea for these things. I got that from uh, Mark Lee. He holds up signs in Zoom meetings, um, but I, I adapted mine. So I've got all kinds of different ones. <laughs> and I can credit talking about these peaks and troughs in a presentation. I know that Stuart Harris, he talks about, um, I can't remember what he calls it, but he's got a diagram, a graph that talks about how many minutes you should go between re-engaging re people. Um, and I've mentioned John Creamer, who, who was my improv, my main improv teacher. There's lots of stuff on icebreakers for trainers mm. out there, loads of books. There's just not so much for speakers because mm -hmm. speakers traditionally haven't been having to engage their audience in that way or to that extent. Yeah. And that's exactly why I wanted to have a chat with you and not with somebody else. So again, experiential speaking, Jackie, thank you so much for your time. I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed it so much. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I also hope that our listeners today have enjoyed it as much as I did. And we are both in London. You are South London. I'm Northwest. So let's keep in touch. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, 
and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.